Where in the world is this crazy auto industry headed? We're going to get some great insight into that question because our guest on today's show is Tom Stahlkamp, former president and vice chairman of Chrysler and board member of Daimler Chrysler. He came up through the purchasing ranks at Chrysler to rise to the very top of the company, which I believe makes him the only purchasing executive to ever make it to the top of a major car company. Today, Tom Stahlkamp is an industrial partner at the private equity firm Ripplewood Holdings, which keeps him heavily involved in the automotive industry. He's got a lot of great insight, which is why I can't wait to bring him into the studio, along with my journalist panel, which includes Edward Lapham from Automotive News and Neil Baudet from The Wall Street Journal. Get ready for a wide-ranging discussion of what's going on in this industry, and we'll be back to do just that right after this. From our studios in the Motor City, this is AutoLine. Here now is John McElroy. Welcome to AutoLine Detroit with our special guest today, Tom Stahlkamp, an industrial partner with the private equity firm Ripplewood Holdings. And Tom, great to have you here on Thanks. the set of AutoLine. Thanks. And also joining us is Ed Lapham with Automotive News and Neil Baudet with the Wall Street Journal. Great having the two of you here as Glad well. Tom, you're the consummate insider in the industry, but now sort of looking at it from afar. Do you think with everything that's gone through in this business in the last year that Detroit has learned its lessons? And specifically what I'm looking at is Ed Whitaker has already awarded himself a a $9 million a year compensation, and the UAW is saying, hey, give us back all those concessions. (laughs) Has, Has Detroit really learned anything from what it's been through? Well, let's hope they have. Uh, that's the that's the big question, John. I, I we've gotten through it. We've cleaned up the balance sheets, but I don't know if we've really cleaned up the culture at, at all the other companies. And uh, and it's just time will tell. I hope we don't slip back into the old ways. But uh, you can clean up the balance sheet faster than you can fix culture. So we'll see. But I, I think some positive signs. I think Ford's actually doing a great job, not just financially, but on the culture change. I give Mulally a lot of credit for that. And it wasn't, and he listened uh, and spent a lot of time learning the business, actually, after he got here. Let's hope it happens at the other two companies. If Mulally pulled off a culture change, what are the keys that the other companies have to look at in being able to do just that? Well, I gave a talk at the uh, at the. Chicago branch of the Fed last week. And the first thing I think is you've got to blow away the hierarchical structure. I mean, it's almost like the Catholic Church invented Detroit, you know. And, and the structure suppressed individual thought, suppressed people asking the right questions, and made everybody hunker down. And if you hunkered down long enough, you could work there for 30 years. Those days are gone. You can't work there for 30 years anymore. And uh, you should be able to ask questions. And I think you've got to change the whole management structure. Bringing one guy in at the top isn't going to do it. You have to concentrate on the middle management and the structure that's, that's in the way. Has the relationship with stakeholders changed? For example, do suppliers notice a new culture or changes happening at General Motors? I'm sure they do at, at Chrysler because we're seeing the influence of fiat. But right, right. Is there anything that we're seeing that has changed? Oh, I think so. I think it started a long time ago. I think uh, Lutz started the way of saying the right things as far as being a critic, an internal critic. I guess he's going to write a book now, which I'd love to see uh, now that he's retired. I think uh, Chrysler, I think they've really made a, a, a not the new purchasing guy is really, he worked for me in one of the platforms I ran. He came from engineering. He understood how you leverage suppliers and had the right way to do it with suppliers. It's a question of GM, have they really 
uh, they've leaned out their structures so much, they're going to have to rely on suppliers, they're going to have to treat dealers differently. But if you look at it, it wasn't just suppliers they treated poorly in the big three. It was the customers. You know, they ignored the customer. They actually ignored the unions. It was the most dysfunctional relationship you could ever find. They, they uh, ignored the dealerships. Uh, so every constituent they had, including their own employees, they sort of alienated. Now they've got to get the, all that back. And I think they're trying. I don't know if they've won back all the dealers, but it seems like these, these settlements are helping in that way. I think the suppliers are are listening and waiting to see. I've said all along that you can't just say, uh, you're a born-again evangelist, I see the light. You've got to build trust, and trust is through actions and deeds, and they've got to, they've got to do that over time. You spent many years at, at Chrysler. What's your view of how well Chrysler was doing? Of course, Chrysler was probably the, the sickest of the three. Right. Uh, what's your view of how, how they're doing so far? Well, externally, they seem to be doing uh, better on uh, the supplier relations side. I think they had to. They knew they need. The only way they can survive is with suppliers doing a lot of the work because their engineering ranks are so decimated. I I don't understand. And I have to give uh, Sergio a lot of credit. If if you believe the numbers that he says publicly, and his share continued to drop, his his revenue continued to drop. The only way he could make money is to reduce costs significantly. And and where it came from, he he hasn't divulged yet. But you got to believe him. You got a little bit of trust. And so he's done a pretty good job of changing the cost structure of the company. I think it comes from the incentive reductions, as she's mentioned. I think a, big of, a lot of it comes from uh, overhead reduction. They got rid of a lot of plants, a lot of uh, component plants they didn't really need, way undercapacitized. And then they got a union contract that really helps them. So I, th I hope they're uh, on the way to recovery. Talking about suppliers, Tom, there were a lot of people who thought that there would be more suppliers that went bankrupt, went out of business, fell by the by the roadside. Uh, but it was a, a, a relatively mild winter for the uh, for, for the suppliers. Are there more shoes to drop? Do you think, or are, are suppliers out of the woods? Well, I think what happened was there was a lot of financial restructuring, but not a lot of bankruptcies. Uh, people went through. Uh, some of the big suppliers obviously went through bankruptcy and restructured. A lot of the middle guys got their balance sheets fixed with the help of outside credit, uh, private equity money coming in. The problem is we haven't consolidated the numbers. And so, yes, there will be another wave of consolidation, and that's really problematic. Is it going to come internal to the U.S. manufacturing base, or is it going to come from outside firms coming in? And school's still open on that. And that's where Fiat, how many suppliers Fiat brings in from Italy, uh, and how they get here. Do they just come over, or do they buy somebody? I think there's going to be a pickup in merger activity uh, at the end of this year. In including from uh, private equity groups? I think for a, for a long time, private equity, uh, especially our firm, was, was uh, we put a hold on automotive investments. But I think now they see the volumes are coming back. They see that the U.S. industry is, is uh, I think, fairly secure in its, its slow growth back. So you will see some activity here. But the problem is... Nobody's going to buy a supplier that's just North American or just European or, or even just Asian or even Chinese, the wonderful Chinese. You're going to have to buy a supplier that's in all three of those big markets. And that, that requires consolidation because there aren't a lot of mid-sized companies in, in those territories. So it's going to require roll-ups, and that's what private equity does. As uh, Ed mentioned, there's been no big collapse in the supplier industry like so many people, including myself, thought that we might see. But Nobody leaving. 
a lot of big financial collapses with the Delphi, Vistia, Correct. and Lear. You know, I, I mean, not just going out of business and all of a sudden car companies can't build cars because they can't get parts. We didn't right. see that happen. But right. volumes have been disastrously low. Is the supplier industry going to be able to ramp up? Like this, just this week, A.T. Carney came out and said, hey, we're going to see uh, record sales by 2015. I hope not. I hope we don't see record sales because I don't think the industry can keep up. I, I think the problem is the big guys have secured through either bankruptcy or through their refinancing, they've secured their credit lines. But the industry still relies on hundreds and thousands of middle-sized, small mom-pa shops who don't have the credit yet and aren't going to be able to expand as fast as the industry picks up. And so I think that's the big question. The banks, which you know, small and middle-sized companies get their money from banks. They don't get it from the street or from uh, private investors. They get it from uh, commercial lending. And that hasn't really picked up yet. The government's uh, uh, auto ballot remains very unpopular in certain parts of the country, maybe most parts of the country. What's your view? Was it successful? Jury still out? I think the way, after you look at the way they went through bankruptcy, it was I, I obviously didn't want Chrysler to go bankrupt. Uh, a lot of us lost our pensions in that process. But when you step back from all the personal side, um, the way they went in and came out so quickly did allow them to get rid of some legacy costs that were very difficult if they could ever have addressed them uh, for in their old structure. So I, as much as it pains all of us to say that it, the bankruptcies uh, happened, I think in the long run it was good. And I think the only way they could have done those kind of bankruptcies is with the federal assistance. Um, now we went through a near-death experience every 10 years at Chrysler. And when I, I went there in 1980, and we had the Loan Guarantee Act. So we didn't take any actual money. They just guaranteed the loans from the banks. There may have been another way to get there, but time was so short, and the thing was collapsing so quickly. When Chrysler was in trouble in 1980, it was a slow slide, relatively. This was the fastest collapse of a major industry I've ever seen in... in well, global economy, life. not just this industry. Right. Six months. Right. And so the only... Back to your, answer your question. The only way was a government assistance. And so now Larry Summers says it looks like it's quite likely the government will be made whole, that they'll be able to get all their uh, $50 billion back from General Motors, at least. Well... That's, uh, depending on what the IPO the, price the is. The two companies have to go public. They have to float an IPO. Uh, it's going to take a while because you're not going to dump all those shares on the market at once. You're going to have to dribble them out. Uh, we'll see what. And then if the market continues to go and they continue to be profitable, it might make it. I, I think it's still 50-50 if the government's ever going to get all that money back. But doesn't it look like in a... It seems like there are some factors in place that make it uh, an IPO quite favorable. We're at the beginning of the, right. the up cycle. Um, we're at 11, 12 million unit sales in the U.S. this year. If we're going to 12 and a half, 13 and 14, there's a couple of years of growth. So, so it, it does, is that a, a good prospect for an IPO for both of those companies? If, as we said before, the cost structures have really changed and been permanently lowered, and they don't throw a lot more costs into it as the volume goes up, which is why I'm advocating for a slower recovery than a big recovery, then yes, it could be an IPO. Tom, when you stand back and look at the global automotive industry, what do you see? Because I think the restructuring that's gone on in the U.S. has been terrific, actually. A lot of people got burned. A lot of innocent people got burned. That's the bad side. Right. The good side is these guys are fully competitive now, the big three and the major suppliers right. here. I don't see Europe doing any restructuring, at least not yet. 
uh, a little bit of playing around in Japan. Toyota's now talking about reducing capacity in Japan, which right. I think is a big statement. Right. But what do, you, what do you see when you look at the rest of the, no, I agree the industry? I, I think Europe's still uh, a long ways to go in consolidation, but you've got to look at how they would consolidate. You know, I mean, uh, this Daimler, uh, Nissan, Renault thing, I don't, I don't really know what to make of that. Um, <laughs> but how do you put these things together, other than Volvo going to Geely and a few of the outliers? But the big guys uh, are still in, problematic, and there's just too much capacity. And they have too much capacity in the wrong places. It's in Western Europe primarily. And taking one of our companies, one of our um, uh, private equity firms is in Germany. It's very difficult without increased volumes to move out of your existing locations in either France, Germany, or even Spain for that matter. So, yeah, I think Europe's got a problem. I think Japan has woken up the fact that their labor costs are, so, are now as high as Europe almost with everything included. And we see some evidence of the Japanese moving offshore, either to Thailand, which is a, a very uh, good place to be, and we have a couple of companies there. As long as the government's not shooting everything up. Well, right. This, this isn't a good week to be there, but, uh, uh, or into Vietnam, or into China, or into India. So I think the Japanese, we've actually got a company that ships Honda aluminum wheels out of China back to Japan, and I think you're going to see more of that happening. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to Chrysler for a minute, because you talked about structure. What do you make of the structure that Sergio Marchionne has put in place of having CEOs of the brands with full P&L, profit and loss responsibility? Um, I don't know if you can ever get a full P&O for a brand, because in these centralized companies, the, the value of being a centralized company is you have a lot of overhead that's allocated. And so that that's the issue, is you can have a, uh, an operating profit maybe for a, uh, a brand, but does a brand own a plant? Uh, I, usually not. You usually have several brands in a not brand. Anymore. And how do you al yeah. And how do you allocate that cost back to the brand adequately? So I, I, it's a good way to hold their feet to the fire for metrics, but I don't know if it's really uh, an accounting valid method to do it. Of course, if sales take off, then... Well, no, it works. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And let's talk about uh, suppliers, too. I mean, uh, as you mentioned, Dan Knott, who now is uh, handling purchasing at Chrysler, uh, is they're not calling it SCORE, but it sounds to me like they're trying to get back to some of the processes that you had when you were running procurement and supply, as you called it that back then. I sent him the book, and I uh, hope he read it. And uh, <laughs> Whether they call it score or whatever they call it, uh, I think his statements about in honor of news about he's getting out of the adversarial practices, that's what score was all about. And he did a great job on, as I said, on one of the platforms I ran, I think it was Large Car, he was an engineering guy on it. And I think he saw the value of, of working collaboratively with suppliers. I've said before that Chrysler can't make it without that because they don't have enough. The, the reason 12 years ago we did the merger still is valid. We didn't have enough technology to make it long-term. We could have lasted a couple years because it, it, the technology didn't move as fast as we thought it was going to move. But long-term, Chrysler needed a partner. And the only way they could get a partner, uh, they need it not just with an OEM partner, but with suppliers. And with that, they can, they can survive, as long as they don't put a lot of costs in. But the history of the industry, they've worked collaboratively, easy for me to say, collaboratively before. Right with suppliers, with the union, with all the other stakeholders. But then when times get good, they tend to forget or go back to their old habits, you know. Right. As you say, when, when it's time to ramp up, you've got to do what you need to do. 
Well, you'll see it even before the ramping up. You'll see it now. We'll wait and see how they handle steel increases. Will they allow steel to, uh, suppliers to offset steel increase? We know steel's going to go up. It's already gone up. Right now, most companies I hear aren't allowing steel pass-through like they have for uh, non-ferrous metals or you know, precious metals, things like that. So we'll see how they handle uh, stampers that have to pay more money for steel. That's and, the first indicator? Yeah, I think so, because the commodity is rising faster than the other costs. Chrysler's got uh, a new partner in, in Fiat. Um, of course, you were there when Chrysler was paired up with, with Daimler. How do you think uh, Fiat fits with Chrysler and, and whether these two companies make uh, logical sense to, to be together? Well, I said at the time, after the divorce of uh, Daimler Chrysler, that they needed a partner. And the only partner, logical partner was Fiat because they have technology and small engines. They have very good small and mid-sized cars. And that was the only logical partner on the planet. Not PSA, Peugeot Citroën? No, PSA's had so many partnerships, I think their alliance, uh, you know, uh, starved. I just don't think they've, they've got, you can't have partnerships with everybody, and that's what they do. Uh, Volkswagen isn't a good, you know, they, they'd never want a partner now, they're on a roll. Uh, we tried BMW, that was one of the issues that Lutz and I had at going way back before the, the uh, Daimler Chrysler, we wanted to do some stuff with BMW. We did a joint venture in, in Brazil, um, but the Quants didn't want to sell. And I see recently they're staying again. They want to be independent and got downgraded for saying that. Um, so Fiat was their only logical choice. Now the cultures between, the culture clash between Daimler and Chrysler isn't going to exist between Chrysler and Fiat for two reasons. One, Fiat's not Daimler. And two, uh, they've been whipped down so badly at Chrysler that the pride that used to be there and the, you know, we've got the, the answer to partnerships and to teamwork and all that, that got blown away in the Daimler uh, bad marriage. So they have to accept Fiat. And the third thing is, it's, it is not a merger. It's, even though he didn't pay any money, it's an acquisition. And we've said all along that acquisitions are a lot easier than mergers. And um, although we tried to make Daimler Chrysler a merger, in reality, in retrospect, and in hindsight, it would have been better to call it an acquisition and just get on with it. Can, can Chrysler, the pickup truck, uh, Jeep, minivan company, make it selling European small cars? Oh, I think so. I think uh, it can't make it with just a Grand Cherokee new model. I mean, it's got to do more than what's it's coming. So it, it's got a, a window here of of a nervousness. It's got the Grand Cherokee, then the Reskin 300, and then I guess there's a minivan. Uh, I don't know how much, a, a year and a half or maybe two years after that. In between there, once you get the product filled, all you need is a pickup truck and a, and a good mid-sized car. You may need a, a tiny car that they're going to bring in the 500. So that's a full range in today's market. As long as they don't have aspirations to be a clone of GM or Ford like they used to, like w we all did. And as long as they are dedicated to retaining, to making money at a small share, they could make it. I think no one's going to have the big shares that GM or Ford used to have. It's no. going to look like Europe. So it's an interesting case. I, I just hope they don't get the, uh, I hope they keep all the financial analysts in a, in a closet and lock the door and don't let them keep, you know, growing. How, how many ultimately families of companies or, or alliances do you think there will be globally? I don't know. I think 
I used to say there'd be only like seven big global car companies, but now I don't know because you got the transition of the Chinese and the Koreans coming in. Nothing happens overnight, as we've seen in Detroit. So you're going to have a long period of time, my lifetime uh, left, and I hope to live a long time. Uh, you're still going to have this transition of the old guys either either hanging on or alliancing themselves for a little bit longer or, in fact, changing, and the new guys coming in. But eventually you'll have maybe five to seven big global companies. Do you see anything coming of these upstarts, the Teslas, uh, the, the Fiskers, uh, or even one of the Chinese companies, not, not the, uh, the standalone Chinese companies like BYD that's really pushing into plug-ins and electrics? Right. Uh, I'm a student of history, and I think the answer to that is n not long-term. Someone, if they're successful, someone will buy them because they'll have had something that they didn't have. Like, I don't know if it's going to be Tesla or Fisker, but so if one of those guys hits on it and has a unique product and it's, and it's accepted well, it'll be too hard for him to expand quickly. And so the other guys who don't have that product, if they're doing okay, will we'll buy one of those guys. And frankly, I'm sure that's what they're thinking of. Will BMW and, say, Honda be able to remain uh, independent as niche players? A good question. Uh, BMW probably because of the, where they are in the market. Honda, they're so independent. They're so fiercely independent. You've got to give them a lot of credit. But long term, I don't know. They're going to, I would think, they have to do some alliances. Well, remember, too, though, I, I keep pointing out, Honda's not just a car company. It's a motorcycle Absolutely. company. It's a power products company. Right. It's getting into robots and all airplanes. 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 So yeah, that's a, yeah. they're, they're so a, interesting. They do things totally different. Right. So they'll, they're going to be around in some structure. Right. But I don't know how many. It's going to take a long time to distill this because the Indian and Chinese companies are going to come here. They're going to have some false starts, but they're not going to give up, and they're going to be in this marketplace. Um, but what you're going to have to be is, like I said, in all those major markets. It used to be Europe, North America, and Japan, and now it's going to have to be Europe, including Eastern Europe, North America, Japan, and then China, India. And you've got to be in all four of those places. And um, that'll require more alliances and eventually some consolidation. Aside from the bankruptcies, we have had another major event in the North American uh, auto industry, and that's the whole Toyota recall quality right. uh, uh, crisis. How do you think that's changed the dynamics in, uh, uh, in, the, in the business, or, or has it not? From what I see so far, the owner loyalty factor hasn't been hurt as much as I thought they would be. Some people, if, if you believe the dealers, and you have to believe somebody, a lot of people sat out this, you know, who were going to buy a Toyota, just sat out and waited to see. I think the public has seen so many recalls of so many different products, whether it's pharmaceuticals or medical devices or cars or whatever, a wallboard in your home. I mean, there's nothing that hasn't been recalled. So we're sort of used to recalls. I think they're waiting to see how they handled it, and I think I give Toyota a lot of credit. They waited a long time, but now they're jumping on it. So I don't think they're hurt in the long run. And I think it helps a company, frankly, to go through some of these things because it's uncovered organizational problems in their vast enterprise that they're going to fix. Does it open the door for the big three? Do they have a, uh, uh, some, some of, a, what, of an edge now about uh, winning over Toyota customers? That now it's I, I think nothing sells like product. Lutz has always said that. I believe he's right. I think um, the ads that sort of tried to take advantage of that aren't going to work on the mass public. They're too smart for that. 
they see what's happening. And, they, and there's a little negativism of that. Uh, but I think what's happened is they went down at a time when other people had some good products coming out, and it, it caused them to uh, the population to look at General Motors, to look at Ford, and even to look at Chrysler and say, well, he had, maybe they're all the same now. The blush is off of how great Toyota is. Toyota is no longer Superman. That's right. That's right. And, and that's why it's probably a good thing for them. If you, if you look at what happened, they were having a lot of... I, uh, my father was an engineer, and he was trained to be technical, and he would always wait for more data. And that is, you know, you'd think he was at Toyota, waiting for more data to come in, you know. And what any company should learn from this is you've got to jump on a problem when it's there and you hear it from real people and not just wait for the next guy to come in and, you know, and we all sat there. We all waited for, ah, let's see if that happens someplace else, you know, it was a one-off. There are no one-offs. And with that, we're going to have to wrap it up. But Tom Stahlkamp, thanks so much for coming in and sharing your ideas and views of what's going on in the industry. Very good. It's always good. Very interesting. Ed, thank you. And Neil, thank you. And I will be back in a moment with some closing thoughts. Tom Stahlkamp always impressed me as one of the best executives to ever come out of the Detroit Three. He always kept a cool head and always told it like it was. In fact, when he was on the board of directors at Daimler Chrysler and started questioning policies and practices at the company, like why they kept on building this little smart car when it was never projected to make a profit, they got rid of him. And that's when the whole so-called merger of equals really started to fall apart. That's why I found Tom Stahlkamp's opinions of what's going on in the industry these days so interesting. He's someone who lived it firsthand. But that wraps up today's show. For all of us here at AutoLine Detroit, thanks for watching. We'll see you next week.